and go to work tomorrow and tell everybody that your church played Pink Floyd on Sunday in their services. Well, by now you have a little bit of a clue of what we're going to talk about today, which is money. And uh, I think a lot of you are like, uh-oh, that makes me nervous. And uh, I want you to know I have the best of intent. You know, um, God cares about every aspect of our lives. He cares about, he wants everything that's a part of our lives to somehow add to the growth of our eternal portfolio, if you will. He doesn't want any aspect of our lives to be outside of his touch, outside of his, his, his wisdom, outside of his, his grace for us. Whether it's, our, whether it's the way we parent or our marriages or our relationship with our parents, our friendships, our speech, even our character, our wardrobes, our appearances, our diet, everything. God has a plan for all of that. And mixed in with that is money. I think all of us realize that money is a part of our everyday lives. We go to work to make money. We come home and we pull out the check, checkbook and we pay bills with money. We look at our retirement accounts and wonder if we're going to have enough money. I mean, we're, we're always thinking about money. And God, if he's truly interested in transforming all of our lives, obviously has some things to say about money. And you could probably break those two things down into kind of one, two places. One is related to giving, and the other is to the way we use that which we don't give. And I want to spend this week and next week looking at those two issues. And then the following week, I want to talk about how we kind of invest our lives in a, in a larger sense, and then we're going to move on to another series uh, out of the book of Revelation. And, you know, um, I want you to know that what my spirit is today. Most of you worship with us very regularly. You know, this is not a topic that we talk a lot about. I mean, I, I look back through my notes, and I couldn't find anything in the last year and a half where we had focused in on the issue of money and of giving. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's just the way it is. But it's not a topic we talk about a lot. But I want you to know that my, my heart in this is much like we're going to see the Apostle Paul's in just a few minutes as we read out of 2 Corinthians. It's really for, it's a pastoral heart. I mean, this is an area, if we're going to experience all of the freedom that God gives us in Jesus Christ, if we're going to experience God's release, his freedom, we, we have to get this area of our lives in alignment with what God teaches. So I'm not here to try to talk you into giving more money. The only people that I know how much they give to our church is my wife and I. I don't know what any of the rest of you give, and I don't want to know, you know, and I've never known. And so I don't come, I'm not, and so if I happen to look at you today, it's not because, ah, I know what you give. You know, not the story, all right? I want you to know that. And, I, and, I, and, I come, and, and we're a church that's on budget. Praise the Lord for that, you know, that we're on budget. You know, and yet that doesn't mean that we don't have some things to deal with. You know, so some might think that it's kind of beneath the church to talk about money. I mean, the, the institution that handles things like the grace of God and the love of God and the word of God, how can you talk about money? This seems to soil you. Well, I want to tell you, the, the Bible talks a lot about money. And the major, one of the reasons why is because money is one of three main character assassins that we see in the scriptures. The, there's the love of money, there's sex, and then the pursuit of power. Those three things serve as major character assassins as we see it in the scriptures. We've talked about sex here a little while back, we had a series entitled Sex by the Good Book. If you weren't here and didn't catch that, then we have copies of those sermons out in the lobby that you can pick up and take with you. Power, we talk about all the time. I would see that as things like pride and success and, and all those kinds of things that drive us often. But the Bible talks a lot about the issue of money as a character assassin, and it's surprising how much the Bible talks about money. Somebody's gone through and they've, decided, they've 
as they kind of evaluate the scriptures, they will tell you that money is talked about in the Bible three times more than love. That's pretty mind-boggling, isn't it? There is a reference to money three times more than there is to a reference to love. Seven times more than prayer. And eight times more than faith. It's an interesting scenario. Now, I, you could go in and argue, but it certainly as you look at the parables and the Proverbs and other commandments and just the whole spirit, it's just there a lot. There are illustrations about money and about giving and etc. All of this points to the fact that money is profoundly spiritual in our lives. You and I are foolish if we think that money is just paper. Money is a force for good or evil in our lives. And we need to get things right if we're going to move forward. In order to kind of get ourselves on track with the issue of, of money and of giving and the place of money in our lives, I think it's necessary for us to dispel some myths, some modern myths that we have about money. You know, I, as I talk with believers and, you know, you, you just get a sense that there's these underlying assumptions that we build our attitudes and our responses and even our obedience and our understanding of what God teaches about money and the scriptures on. And, and we hold some myths that just do not biblically hold water. And so the text I'd like for to point you to today is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. And if you're, you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 985. In order for this text to make sense to you, I got to give some background to you first. Paul has had a long relationship with the church at Corinth. Corinth is, for the most part, a very affluent city. It's a major crossroads in the ancient world. There are people coming and going and merchants bringing stuff in and sending it out all the time. And it's a fairly prosperous city. Paul had spent a long time there planting the church. He had a close relationship with the church. He also had a real passion for the Jewish component of the church and the Gentile aspect of the church to stay in relationship with one another. And he had learned that the Jerusalem church was really struggling. Not only had they been ostracized from their community, meaning that economically the Christians had been somewhat, were kind of forced down the totem pole, and they were suffering because of that. But then the whole area had gone into an economic downturn, and there was no tarp to bail them out, and they were just poor and struggling. And so Paul wanted to collect an offering that a, a group of representatives from the Gentile churches would take to the church in Jerusalem to help relieve their need. With the conviction that at some point in the future, if the Jerusalem church could and would, it could relieve the suffering of other Gentile churches that would come. And so he had gone to the Corinthian church in, in his good days with them and said, would you give? And they said, absolutely, we want to give. In fact, we want to be the flagship. We want to be first in line, you know, and, and we'll move forward. And then things between the Corinthian church and Paul didn't go so well. Things got a little tense. You know, they had a pulpit search committee. Maybe they're thinking about getting rid of Paul as their apostle, you know, and that kind of, you know. And, and, but finally it all worked out and they were back in good steads. And, and, and Paul writes to them and says, listen, this work got started, but it's not finished. And he writes to them, and this is what he says, beginning with verse, first, verse 1 of chapter 8. And I, I think as we look at this text, we can see some modern myths that we hold about money and giving that we can dispel. He writes to them, said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God given or granted to the churches of Macedonia. You can think Philippi, like the book of Philippians, Thessalonica, like the church letters written, written to the, the Thessalonian letters that we have in the scriptures, and also Berea and those kinds of churches. The churches of Macedonia, that during a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. 
I testify that on their own, according to their own ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves especially to the Lord, then to us by God's will. So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace to you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, excel also in this grace. That's his spirit. It's my spirit as well today. Take all the things that we already have accomplished in Christ, all the things that God's already gifted us with, and add to it this gift of the grace giving in our lives. Let me read on just a little bit. It says in verse 8, I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he was rich. For your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. God, open up our minds and our hearts now to understand what it is that you have to say to us. God, without, without a heart that truly wants to listen, without an openness to the way that your spirit can speak to us, we're going to reject this stuff this morning as foolishness. So God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that you're saying to us from your word today. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you kind of work through this text today, I think there's some things in it that you can see that dispel some modern myths that we have about giving and about money in our lives. And one of those modern myths I think we have is that, that only people who really have money ought to give. You know, that's kind of our philosophy with taxes, isn't it? Only the people who really make a lot of money should be the ones who pay taxes. What is it this year I read? I think I read recently that 40%, 47% of Americans this year aren't going to pay any income tax because they don't make enough money to pay. And we just take that same philosophy, we apply it over to us in the church, and we say, well, only the people who make real money are the ones who want to give, you know? And i got to tell you, that's not true. You look here at this example. These Macedonian churches, it said that in their severe affliction and their deep poverty, it overflowed into the wealth of their liberality. Let me, let me just give you a little example. I mean, those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts, you know that when Paul and Silas went into Philippi, they got the stew beaten out of them because they were preaching Christ. And they landed up in jail in the middle of the night, remember? And it t- took a miraculous earthquake of God to release them and throw the doors of the prison open for them to be able to, to move out and, and to lead the Philippian jailer and his family to Christ. I mean, this was not a great place to be a Christian. These people were on a lot of pressure. God, would, they were getting squeezed, and with it, they were getting squeezed out of the market. And these people were poor. They were probably second on the list below the Jerusalem church as churches that could deserve and needed a special offering to relieve their, their financial. And these folks were in on it from the beginning. They desired, they begged for the privilege of participating. I got to tell you, you and I are never so poor that we can afford to disobey God in the area of giving. We may convince ourselves that the rich people can give, the, the people who have more than enough, somehow, and somehow or another, we're, uh, we're, um, you know, we're, we're, ex- we don't, we're not responsible to follow God's commandments in the area of giving, but you are never so poor that you can afford to disobey God in the area of giving. Now, I always get asked the question, well, how much am I supposed to give? You know, and, and I will tell you that in the New Testament, there's never a percentage mentioned. Now, you go over the Old Testament, and there's certainly an expectation that you're going to bring a tenth of the first fruits. That's 10%, a tithe. And on that, on, beyond that, there were special offerings that the people were expected to participate in 
through the out the, the church throughout their spiritual year, throughout their religious year. But then there were also other special events that came along that they gave to above and beyond that. The New Testament just kind of builds on that foundation and goes forward. My, my, my understanding of the New Testament's approach to this is that they just kind of embrace and assume that foundation and they move beyond that. This idea that all that I have is God's instead of just the tenth that I give and, and they move from that. I got to tell you, no matter what, I mean, if, if you don't like my understanding of what the scripture teaches, then you need to make sure you figure it out for yourself. Is it enough? Just, it's not just enough to say, well, I don't like the pastor. I don't, I don't think 10% is right. That's way too much. And then not figure it out for yourself. You need to go to the word of God yourself and figure it out. I will tell you that from the first day that I was married and even before Christina and I have given a full 10th of our income for these last almost 26 years. And, uh, God's been grateful. I, you know, I, and I would never say that we've made a lots of money. And some of the best days we had was when we would write a tithe check on the 28th of the month on a Sunday and not sure where the rent on the first was going to come from. And then watch God somehow take care of. You can never too poor to afford to be disobedient to God. I think Jesus kind of dispelled this whole myth that only the rich should give. You know, during the last week of his life, he, he was in the temple and he was watching the temple treasury. And some of you are very familiar with that story. You know, there were guys, the money bags were coming by. The guys who had plenty of money and they're, they're coming by and they're, they're throwing in their loud coins into these big jars that they collected the offering. And they were making these clanging noises and it sounded like they were putting tons of money in and they probably were putting in a lot of money. And then this widow who all she had was just what she needed for the day for food. And she came and she just quietly put it in and moved on. And Jesus said, that's what you should celebrate. That's what you celebrate. It's not just the rich, but it's all of us who call on the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ who are expected to give. We also have this idea that giving's no fun, right? I mean, we hear the expression, you're supposed to give till it hurts. And somehow or another, the first dollar hurts. So that's it. I'm done. You know, we, you know, you know, and we don't think that giving's any fun. You know, and I, uh, I don't think you can back that up from the scriptures. You know, in one ways, I, you know, here you say that their, their giving created an abundance of joy among these Macedonian churches. Somehow or another, we labor under this assumption that if we just kept the money for ourselves, we'd have more fun with it. I have to admit, there are my pagan moments where, especially when I'm out jogging, and I, I hate to think about what I'm doing because I hate to run, you know, and they've got to come up with some kind of other way to do that kind of exercises without actually having to run, you know? I mean, anyway, uh, I don't want to get distracted. So that would be great. And, you know, you think, boy, Think of the things that I could do with the money if I didn't give that to the Lord's work. I mean, I could be driving a brand new BMW 1200C. For those of you who know anything about BMW motorcycles, it's sweet. <laughs> but they cost like $23,000 or something. They're a ridiculous amount of money. I mean, they, I could look at all the fun stuff I could do with this money. And then you hear Jesus say, you know, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And it just kind of boots that whole notion right out the window that somehow or another we could have more fun with it ourselves. I mean, if you need a practical application, just, just look at your own lives. I mean, as you, you give gifts to your children on a Christmas morning, who has more delight on their face when they open it up and they're really excited about it? Certainly they have theirs, but you have this special joy that goes with it as well. I think the Bible's quite clear when it says God loves a cheerful, a cheerful giver. You know, Jesus celebrated the sense of extravagance when he, this woman at Bethany who came and she, she took a whole bottle of perfume that was worth lots of money and anointed him totally with it. And he said to her, you've done something beautiful to me. Giving can indeed be fun. It can be joyful. We also have this idea that somehow or another that if we give, we're eventually not going to have enough for ourselves. That somehow or another that we, we, we just can't get it in our heads 
that how can 90% be more than 100%? doesn't make any sense, does it? And if I only have 90%, that somewhere along the line, I'm going to not have enough for everything else. The average in America right now, the average American household, as of three or four years ago, spent four to $500 more a year than they actually made. So that's like 100, 101, 102%. So how is it that I can live with, you know, in God, you know, God's economy, he says that 90 is more than, how does that work? You know, and so if I give somehow or another, I'm not going to have enough to go around. It's interesting. You think about the feeding of the 5,000 experience. Jesus has got this massive crowd spread out across the hills. It's getting late in the day. People are hungry. There's no place for them to get food. Jesus and his disciples, they don't have enough money to go buy everything. And what happens? This little boy comes forward. He's got a first century happy meal. You know, he's got a couple of fishes and a few loaves. You know, and, and I'm sure he's holding on to it. If he's anything like, you know, like I would have been, said like, if you take this, I'm going to have nothing. You know, and he, and he gives it to God. And what happens? Jesus takes it and he prays over it and he breaks it. And they pass out the food to the whole 5,000 and they give the kid back 12 baskets full of food. And yet somehow or another, we can convince ourselves that we're not going to have enough if we give the way God expects us to give. When you came in this morning... You picked up some candy. Some of you got Skittles. Some of you got Starbursts. The Skittles were more popular today. They went very fast. I want you to know that. So on your way out, you can grab some more Starbursts, I think. There's lots out there, you know. But these do have a purpose. I I, I want you to envision something for a second. Imagine a, a dad taking his little boy out to the ball game on a Saturday, you know, Big doing, so, you know, and, and seats are expensive, so they're sitting out in the bleachers just getting bleached by the sun, you know, at Fenway Park. And on his way in, his dad buys his son a bag of candy. So they get up in there, and the game gets started, and the son opens up the candy and starts to eat it slowly, like they're precious pieces, one skittle after another into his mouth. And like about, you know, middle of the first inning, the latter part of the first inning, the father said, hey, can I have a few of those? So I said, these are mine. You know, you bought these for me, you know, kind of idea. And, you know, and if I give them to you, I'm not going to have as much for me. So the son doesn't give his father any. Baseball games go on forever. I know, I watched the doubleheader yesterday. They go on forever, you know, even if they're only seven innings each game. You know, about the fifth inning, the son's ready for another bag of Skittles. says, Dad, can I have some more money for some more Skittles? And the father said, you know, I just asked you to share them with me. And now you want more... It's a picture of the way we relate to God. God gives us a life full of Skittles. And he says, I, I just want some of that back. And we said, no, 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 I won't have enough. And then later we're saying, you know, my kid doesn't wear children's size sneakers anymore. Now they wear adult size sneakers. They used to be $29.99. Now they're $69.99. God, I need some more money, you know. It used to be just my wife and I were on the insurances, but now our kids are on the insurances too, and that's a lot more money. God, I need some more money. God, my, my, my kids are going to college now, you know, and I need some more money to pay for all of this, and we wonder where the dynamic goes. I want to promise you from my own experience that 90% can actually be more than 100% in God's economy. And God will never leave you without. I want to tell you the people that, that impress me are those who tithe on their unemployment checks. And we've had some of them. And it's incredible stuff when you see it at work. Another myth we have is that God only expects you to do what you can do. This whole idea that, that somehow or another what we give is a financial matter. You know, somehow or another, and, and this is this is really, in many ways, a prevailing attitude, even in the evangelical churches. It, it, it really blows my mind. But this is this attitude like, all right, at the end of the month, I sit down, 
I pay all my bills. I set some money away for savings. I set some money away from retirement. Maybe you're putting money away in a college education fund for for your kids or for your grandkids or whatever. And then you need some spending money. You got to buy gas and food and that kind of stuff. And all right, this is what I got left over. So that's what I can afford to give to God. And, and God's just okay with us doing what we can. You know, and I got to tell you, it's, 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 it's probably something that a lot of us are functioning off of. It's interesting to me that, that people long to go to churches to teach the clear reality, clear message of the Word of God. And yet in recent studies, they show that the vast majority, of the, the average giving in evangelical churches is 2.5%. Because a lot of people are just living with this attitude of, God only expects me to do what I can. What does the Scripture says here? They, did, they, they didn't give according to their ability, but beyond their ability they gave. They, they exercised faith. They gave first fruits and they move forward. See, when we just make it about what, what we think we can afford to give, we, we make it a matter of money. But giving is always supposed to be an act of faith and an act of worship. It's a way in which we celebrate our relationship with God. It's a place where we exercise faith and see God at work. It's a place where we take those next steps beyond. Now, I, I, I want to issue a challenge. I want to I ask you to, to do something. I would like for you to begin to pray and ask God, what is it that he would have me give, if anything, to a special offering at Hope Chapel that we're going to take up between now and the end of May? I'm not going to ask you for money. I'm simply going to ask you to talk to God and do what God tells you to do. I've referred to this prayer emphasis as a move a mountain of debt because we have a lot of debt. We actually have two types of debt, the way I refer to it as, as, as our church. We have our primary debt, which is our main mortgage, which is a little over $1.1 million. We pay a little over $9,000, right around $9,000 a month in principal and interest on that loan. And we're always working to see how we can make sure we're getting the best rate so we can put the most money towards paying down that loan. We have some secondary debt that we also have. When we first started the building project, before we even turned over the first shovel, we borrowed $40,000 from the Baptist Foundation of New England, um, unsecured at 5%, so we just have some money to work with as we went through architects and engineers and landscapers and all that kind of stuff, and, and, and we owe about $30,000 on that note. Also, in order to have enough resources to construct this facility, we couldn't, qualify, we couldn't qualify for enough money just based on our budget, so people prayed, talked to God, and did what he told them to do, and we had 70 families pledge a little over $775,000. And we received in excess of $700,000 over that three-year period that they gave those funds. And we borrowed money against that, but it left just a little bit left. In fact, when, we, when that all wrapped up in 2008, we owed about $65,000 left on that loan that we had taken out. Now we owe $13,000. That's pretty good. I wish I could pay my mortgage down that fast. So we have $43,000 in secondary debt. That's about one month's offering for Hope Chapel. And, 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 all I, and my, what, I, what God has laid on my heart is that we need to pay off that secondary debt in this budget cycle by the end of June. And, and so I, I'm just asking you to pray. What is it that God would have me do? Some of you, God might say, you know, you may say, I, I, I'm just not in a position. God's not leading me right now. That I go Others of you say, you know, I can, do, I can do a couple of months extra budget giving. I can do three, whatever. And you can just go that route. Christina and I, we gave one extra month's giving to help pay down this debt. We, we, we're going to give 13 months in this budget year. And, and you know, and I, so, so we've already, t- I, I don't want to ask you to do something that I haven't already done. And so I'm asking you just to talk to God. I'm not going to ask you for any money. We'll send you a letter to give you a little more specifics and all that kind of stuff. So, so you'll have all of that. I just ask you to, t- and, if, and, and, and if and when you're ready to give, you can just use your regular envelope and under the other section, you can just put debt and they'll know exactly what to do with it. 
it's a wonderful opportunity for us to do just do more than what we think we can do as we move forward. And the resources it can free up for God to use is incredible. Just a thing to celebrate. Hope Chapel recently, uh, in the last month or so, received a special $11,000 gift to help pay down this debt. A couple, three weeks ago, it was at 54000 Today, it's at forty-three. God, God's God's works in this area. It's incredible stuff, and I invite you to be a part of that journey. i got one last point for you, and this will flow out a little bit into next week, which probably none of you will be here because you know, you know what sermons come and say, oh, i gotta, I got something to do. I'm not going. Money cannot buy you happiness. I want to quote for you a well-known, well-respected, incredible philosopher who was also the star of Dumb and Dumber, Jim Carrey. You know, he, he once said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can figure out that that's not the answer. It's not the answer. Life is a three-act play. There's here and now, there's judgment, and there's eternity. And if, and if money can buy you happiness, you're not ready for act two and you're not ready for act three. Contentment is always a spiritual issue. And spiritual contentment comes from being faithful and obedient to God. And so just like Paul's heart to this church, man, we, we might know lots of stuff about the scriptures. We might be serving. You know, we might be sharing our faith with others. We might be demonstrating love to lots of people. We might have tremendous words of wisdom and knowledge for other folks. But man, if we don't excel in the gift of giving, we are incomplete. Excel in all that God has for you. Let's pray together. Father, as challenging as your word might be to us today, and even though this kind of a subject matter is really kind of the last thing that many of us want to deal with in terms of our spiritual journeys, we'd rather deal with forgiveness and joy and strength and ministry and all those kinds of things, God. we, We just need to have a profound thankfulness. There's not one molecule of our spiritual existence, including the area of our finances that you don't care about and have a plan for. God, there's a lot of faith stretching that goes needs to go in because these myths are deeply planted, even in me. And God, if we have the heart for it today, we ask you to root it out of us so that we might be free indeed. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.